This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another global podcast of Fort and Leaders. As you know, I scour this beautiful, magnificent, elegant, intriguing planet of ours to find the most inspirational Fort Leaders out there. With me here in London, I have Lord Alf Dunn. Hello, hello to you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, good to hear you. How are you doing with the lockdown? Oh, yeah, I'm doing okay, thank you. I understand you like to be called Alf rather than Lord Alf, yes. is that right? Yes, please. So, Alf, I want to dive straight in here, and I want to go back to 1932. So you were born during the time when it was coming up to the rise of Hitler. Du, meine Arbeit für German troops entered the capital of Prague, I believe, in about 1939. March 1939, that's right. The day that the Nazis arrived was the day that your dad fled to the UK. Take us back and tell us what was happening at that point. Well, the thing was, he was Jewish and my mother wasn't. And uh, he'd said to his cousins, if the Nazis come here, he's getting out. And his cousins said, well, we'll take a chance. Tragedy is in 1942, they were taken to Auschwitz. I was just starting school at the age of six. In the front of my school book was a picture of the Czech president, President Benesch. We had to tear that out and stick in a picture of Hitler and things like that. So my dad disappeared. Um, my mum tried to get permission to leave and was refused. So she then put me on a kinder transport. When we, your mum was negotiating to get the papers, she was thrown down a flight of stairs. Is that right? Yeah, when she went to get an exit permit... Right. They said you refused. They threw her down the stairs and she landed in a heap at the bottom. Before she had a chance to see what was broken, if anything, and she realised they'd thrown her passport after her. And that gave her a glimmer of hope. In June of that year, you're told that you're going off to London. Obviously, there were other kids in the kinder transport, but you were just by yourself. I was. I didn't know anybody. And, and I was probably, at the age of six, I was mm. probably one of the youngest, if not the youngest. So, yeah, I was, I was certainly on my own. When the parents, like mum, was saying, I'll see you soon, for many of those poor children, they never saw them again. The parents who were seeing their children off had no idea whether they'd see their children again, uh, and if they were going to see them again, they had no idea when. And sometimes it wasn't until many years later. All I can see in my mind's eye is a, a picture of my mum and the friends standing on the platform while I said my goodbyes with German soldiers with swastikas in the background and then the train went off. Yeah, it was a quite a long journey. It was on hard wooden seats. We, when we got to the Dutch border, the older ones cheered because they knew we were out of reach of the Nazis. I didn't know what the significance was. It, obviously, it was important to them and they cheered. We then got to the Hook of Holland and then the boat to Harwich and then to Liverpool Street. You were lucky enough that Dad was there at Liverpool Street waiting for you. Absolutely right. Probably the majority did not have a family member waiting for them. They just had a potential foster family. 
But to that extent, I, I was very lucky, yes. So then you went to live in, uh, is it a bedsit in Belsize Park? Yeah, they're all living either in Belsize Park or Swiss Cottage, if you, if you know your London. If I'm a Londoner, yeah. <laughs> My dad was living in a bedsitter there, yes. You were educated in Wales and in Cheshire, is that right? The Czech government uh, in exile had a boarding school for Czech refugee children, which happened to be in Wales, uh, during the war. Ah. Uh, and my mum sent me there, and there were about 200 of us. They weren't all kinder transport children, but they were all refugees from the Nazis. Your mum sent you there because your dad had a heart attack. She had obviously managed to get over to the UK, and so she was bringing you up alone. Uh, how she did it, I don't know. She got an exit permit at the last minute. She arrived in London the day before the war started, August the 31st. Remember, Germany attacked Poland on September the 1st, so it was her last chance. Within a few months, my father had a heart attack and died. So my mum brought me up. You've got a degree in politics, is that right? Uh, politics and economics, yes. That's right, yes. And then, included in the early jobs that you had, you worked in the glamorous world of advertising. Exotic, delicious, full of Eastern promise. Yes, I was for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but you decided that that wasn't really your thing, is that right? That's right. It wasn't, it wasn't my thing. I didn't feel comfortable in what we were doing, no. In 1945, you're in Blackpool, B&B, with Mum. Yeah, my mum took me for a week's holiday near Blackpool, uh, St. I think it was. That was the day the election results happened. Those election results, I understand it was something like Labour 140 and Conservatives were 30. And someone said at the time, oh, my God, it's the end of England because of uh, Labour coming in at 140. Because of the votes being sent from the Far East, uh, the votes by the armed forces, uh, they didn't start counting until that the morning as opposed to overnight, which we do nowadays. And so the people in the B&B said, why don't I go to the, the square in the middle of the town and hear the BBC on the loudspeaker, which I did. So I went back very proudly to the B&B. They said, what is it? And, I, and as you say, that was the response to my telling them what the figures were at lunchtime. Wow. There was a point that you were quite ill and you were at the Stockport Royal Infirmary. You were walking, I don't know whether it was in the ward or something like that, with a kind of a grey type of a consultant. But it was the day that the NHS was founded. What a time to be in a hospital. In those days, a consultant used to come around with a big team, you know, all the junior doctors and the matron and so on. If you're fit enough, you had to stand to attention. And if you're ill, you had to lie to attention. I was not well enough to be out of bed. So the consultant came by and said, just a minute, can I ask you a question? And, he, you know, it's it, a bit like you don't talk to the queen first, the queen talks to you. So he turned around and he said, what is it? And I said, are we having a party? And he said, why? And I said, well, the hospital's ours today, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, he tutted a bit and walked on. The other people in the ward said, what was all that about? And I explained. And, you know, I sort of thought, well, this is a great day. You know, the Labour Party is doing fantastic things for the country, and this is one of them. <laughs> fantastic, beautiful story. I'm going to take you now all the way up to around the year 1979, when you get elected in the Battersea South, is that right? A majority of 332. 
What was Battersea like in those days, Alf? Well, Battersea North was very much a solid labour area and Battersea South was not quite so, was much more marginal, but the gentrification was beginning. Right. I think then Battersea was becoming the most gentrified constituency in the country. Really? So then you become Shadow Minister for Immigration, Refugees and Race Relations. I was in about 83, uh, my my second term, yes, I was on the front bench for that, yes. Why do you think that they gave you that job? My first term in Parliament, I'd been quite active on those issues. I'd been on the Home Affairs Select Committee. I used to speak a lot on on the issue. So uh, I think they did it for that reason. Now, you lost in 1987. I remember it well. Is it true that you went to the unemployment exchange and you had to sign on? The election was Thursday. Uh, and so Friday, I was sort of cleaning up my office in the Commons. So I went to sign on for unemployment on the following Monday. First of all, they said, why didn't you sign on on Friday? And I said, well, I didn't get to bed till about four or five in the morning. But you could have, you could have signed on in the afternoon. I said, no, I was cleaning up my office in the Commons. So they said, they're not going to allow me to claim unemployment benefit from the Friday. Anyway, I appealed that and, and I won my appeal. And it was backdated to the Friday. <laughs> you have to fill in a form. In the form, it says, why are you unemployed? <laughs> and what, I don't know what to say. I wrote in it, not enough votes. <laughs> uh, anyway, the person in the unemployment office didn't have much sense of humour. She just, just looked at it. Yeah, they still don't. What else could I put in except not enough votes? I mean, that's why I was unemployed. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, it is what it is, Alf, and that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Things start changing a little bit because you become a CEO of the Refugee Council, between 1988 and 1995. Is it at this point that you get involved with the Mental Health Trust or was that later or something? No, no, they, over, they overlapped a bit. I was a non-exec director of a mental health trust. Yeah. And then in 1994, you join the House of Lords. That's right, yes. What was that day like for you, Alf? <laughs> it was surreal. There's a big ceremony and you have to wear these funny robes and things. And my family up in the gallery. And in those days, it was even more formal than it is now. You had to wear funny little hats and then, and then you had to bow and scrape and so on. And uh, there was deathly silence. In the middle of this, my, my daughter just lost it and burst out laughing. <laughs> I knew it was her because I just know her voice. You know, I just know her laughter. And, and I could not keep a straight face. Right. It wasn't quite the way I should have behaved. I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> I want to take you to a lovely program that I used to watch on TV. That's life. You're watching That's Life, and something interesting happens on one of these episodes, doesn't it? Well, it was with Nicholas Winton. That was a fantastic moment. Nicholas Winton was the person who organised the kinder transport. And although I knew I'd come on a kinder transport, it wasn't until about then that I learned that it actually organised them, that he was the person who saved my life and that of 600, 700 other children from Prague. He came along to a BBC studio not knowing anything, and we were all there waiting for him, and we all cheered. So they were, they were quite momentous occasions. And then, of course, I got to know him pretty well after that. He was a wonderful conversationalist, loved talking politics, a great man in every possible way. I was so privileged to have got to know him. 
Really? The least I can do is to uh, be influenced by the things he did in his life, and I've tried to be influenced by them. And you continue to do this wonderful work. And that brings me to 2016, where you moved a uh, amendment to do with child's refugees from Europe. We learned at the time that there were some 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe, in northern France, in Greece, and some in Italy. And so I put down an amendment. I talked to my friends in the Commons that we should take some of these children. And that caused a bit of a stir. I was asked whether I would withdraw the amendment. I said, why should I? Eventually, I was summoned to see Theresa May, who was then the Home Secretary. She said she'd like me to withdraw the amendment. And I said, why? And she said, well, if we take these children, others will follow. And I said, but we can't turn our back on young people who are suffering terribly in in what was then the jungle in Calais or or in camps on the Greek islands. We just can't turn our back on these children who are vulnerable, who are frightened, being lured into criminality, trafficking, prostitution, and so on. We just can't turn our backs on them. We've got to do something. So we parted company. The amendment passed in the Lords. It got the Commons where it was slightly defeated. The story is that I was... Friends of mine said, sit in the gallery and look at them. Uh, and we tried to make it all party, but of course, there was many Tory MPs we wanted on our side, although we had some supporting us. So I, I was told to sit in the public gallery and give them the eye. So I glared at them. There was a small majority against it. So we went back to the Lords, where there was, it was passed by a bigger majority. Mm. And then amazing things began to happen. The British public woke up to what was going on. I think partly because they saw... Terrible photographs. Terrible. Of people drowning in the Mediterranean. There was a little little Syrian boy called Alan Kurdi who was found drowned mm. on the Mediterranean beach. Mm. That had a knock on effect to MPs who became aware of public strength of feeling. And so Theresa May summoned me in again and said the government proposes to accept the amendment. Really? Because one of the arguments, Alf, against doing it was an interesting one. For, you know, it, it could actually encourage even more child trafficking. I reject the argument totally. What's your argument? The argument is this. Where you can get legally to this country or wherever you're going, then the traffickers don't do any business. Where there are no legal routes to safety, uh, then the traffickers say, well, you can't get there. There's no way for you to get there except if you pay me so and so, and so much and, and I'll put you in the back of a lorry or in, in a dinghy across the tunnel. So the more that there are safe ways for children to come here, the less business for the traffickers and the less chance there is for people drowning in the, in the Mediterranean or in the, in the English Channel. In 2016, they made you the Humanist of the Year by the British Humanist Association. So I was very privileged, very privileged. Fantastic. Which brings me to where we are in this awful year of 2020, of this plague of this covid You've been doing some really amazing work, apart from this seriously very important stuff that you've been doing to do with immigration. You've also been working with the National Prison Radio by putting out morale-boosting messages of hope. I was very proud and privileged to be asked to do that. It gave people in prison something to think about in terms of the issues that were going on. I was uh, very happy to do that. So what kind of messages of hope were you giving to these people? Well, broadly speaking, I was talking about refugees and I was talking about the hope. We have to give people hope. Uh, And the most depressing thing 
is, is if people are in a refugee camp and they have no hope of any sort of future at all. So I talked a bit about that and some other issues about our society and so on. There was a window into the outside world as well for the people who were hearing it. The pipes, the pipes are calling From glen to glen And down the mountainside What would you be your message, Alf, of hope? The people who are getting a bit fed up of these lockdowns and more importantly than that, this idea of uncertainty, of not knowing. When you don't know what's going to be happening in the future, that's when things start getting a bit all over the place. Even in very difficult conditions, if there is hope, people are willing to put up with them. If there is no hope, it is very, very difficult indeed to cope. I, I don't have any easy answer. I'm not happy about the government's reaction. The government sort of moved much sooner in February and March, uh, and they should have moved sooner this time as well. I think we have to accept this is the most serious health crisis in our lifetimes. It's going to be very difficult before we get over it. And we've also got to say that those people who are fit and well and young and who are not liable to be that adversely affected, some may be, but on the whole they may not be, there are older people who are very vulnerable, particularly people with health conditions. Mm. And I think we owe it to the older people and the vulnerable people, people who've got diabetes, people who are obese and so on, we owe it to them that we all have to take maximum precautions. We have to do it. Look, the people I'm most sorry for are the people who are on their own. Yeah. My wife's here with me, so the lockdown isn't so bad. Yeah. I think it's really tough on people who are isolated, and I think it's really tough people in care homes who can't be easily visited by their families and so on. They're the ones who are really suffering. In lockdown too, some of the young people are still partying and stuff like that. Is there any way to get through to these people? Or is it just, you know, youth, that's the way that they are? What may be a happy boozing couple of hours at some party can lead to their parents, other than their family, dying. We're all involved in this, and we've all got to act on behalf of the most vulnerable in our society. At the moment, the most vulnerable are, are the ones who are old and liable to be very seriously ill. There was a guy I was listening to who said that he went through the Hong Kong flu. The virus eventually left. Do you think there's been overreaction? No, I don't. I don't at all. I think there's been underreaction. The countries that reacted uh, quicker uh, and uh, and stronger were the ones who who be getting over it over it better. Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, and those countries. So, so I I don't think it's overreaction. I think it's too slow a reaction. You would have preferred Johnson would have acted sooner. Even in lockdown two, it was rather late. He has said that come December the 2nd, lockdown is going to be lifted. He tends to say things uh, without having the evidence to back them up. Look, he could have acted faster in February and March. Also, about six weeks ago, the, the medical people all said, you've got to do it now. Cases are increasing very rapidly. Do it now. And he, he waited about six weeks before doing anything. But Alf, he does have this issue of trying to balance keeping the economy going and this health issue. It's a King Solomon problem, isn't it, of what do you do? 
I think hesitating and dithering and not doing the right thing means that both the economies suffer more and people suffer more. Yeah. But it is a difficult one, though, isn't it? I mean, what do you do? It is fiendishly difficult. I mean, you see what happened in the States. Trump decided the economy is more important, but the death rate is appallingly high. You just mentioned the former president, Trump. I think the government was rather hoping from a Brexit point of view that he would still remain in office. But with Biden, he has said he's not going to be so open to the United Kingdom when it comes to issues of Brexit. What's your thoughts on that? I think the Americans were rather taken aback by this internal borders bill, which was prejudicial to the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. And and the the Americans have been watching Northern Ireland very carefully, and they've been very helpful over the years in in terms of getting to the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, yeah. I think that the way that Boris Johnson is acting in a way that will destabilise the situation in in Northern Ireland. That's one thing. And the other issue, of course, is the farming lobby and all that stuff about chlorinated chicken and so on, where the Americans are very anxious. Right. Sellers farm produce. Well, I dare say even Joe Biden would be anxious to find a market for American farm produce. I don't know. That has to be discussed. But I think he he doesn't start off as president as sympathetic to this country as as Trump would have been. When you see what Trump did in terms of the border in his own country, and you think about all the horrendous experiences that you have witnessed yourself, what's your view in terms of the world becoming more divisive? I think we ought to try and achieve a more balanced outlook. It's very sad that if we demonize some people, and I'm afraid the government's policies are not wanting to take refugees, uh, child refugees. Look, after all, let's remember, refugees are people who are fleeing for safety. They're fleeing from war. They're fleeing from threat of torture, threat of persecution, threat of imprisonment. They're people fleeing for their lives. And we have an obligation to give people safety. And only a tiny number get to this country. The vast majority are in Africa or a million Rohingyas who have fled from Myanmar into Bangladesh and so on. The Germans took a million Syrians. And we, we've taken a very small number indeed. The world is a tough world. You were in the press talking to the British Jewish Board of Deputies about Brexit from an immigration point of view, weren't you? We can deal with the people traffickers if we cooperate fully with the French. So I think what we need is to achieve good relationships with, it, with the European countries. We can be friends and cooperate with them, even if we're not in the EU. And I hope that's what we're going to do. Do you think that the French and so on and so forth, that they will be just as open to cooperate with us? I think we have to extend the hand of friendship as a country, as a government, as people to European countries and show that we want to cooperate with them. And that's the only sensible way forward, whatever the outcome of the last stages of these negotiations. We're a small island off the northern coast of Europe. For heaven's sake, our future has to be tied up with Europe as much as with anywhere. Of course, we retain good relationships with America if we can, or with Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and so on, uh, and other Commonwealth countries. I think we just have to extend a hand of friendship and cooperation to, to our former EU partners. Looking ahead, say, five years, Brexit's done, COVID's done. What will, from a humanitarian point of view, the UK look like? I wish I could gaze into a crystal ball. We are, as America is, even more than we are, a divided society. We've got to have political leadership which will give us a sense of being a united society, that we all cooperate, we look after and we're responsible for each other. So I would hope we can have a somewhat softer approach to politics than we're seeing at the moment. But we have got to Brexit issue behind us. We've got to stop being so divided. 
and we've got to cooperate. And then we've got to look ahead beyond the present economic crisis caused by the pandemic. We've got to make sure our health service works. We've got to look after social care. We're going to have an increasing aging population. So the burdens on the taxpayers will be greater to look after the older people in our society. And I think that is the proper way forward. And I would like to see us move in terms of developing technology. I would like to see us be positive, tackling environmental issues and dealing with climate change, making sure that we become as environmentally a decent country as we can be. Beautiful. Well, with leadership like that, those types of sentiments, that is really where we are going to be heading towards. So thank you, Alf, for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been a great privilege, as I said at the beginning. Thank you for giving me a chance to say a few things. And thank you for your interest in the issues. I, I I'm very privileged to have taken part in this conversation this morning. Thought and Leaders is a goodbye production. If you're looking for award-winning content for your brand or want to chat about the show, you can either email reinvent at me.com that's reinvent at me.com or why not visit us at www.thoughtandleaders.com that's thoughtandleaders.com <laughs>